Julio Diaz is a 31-year-old social worker living in New York. His routine is very familiar to him by now. After work, he takes the subway one hour home, but instead of getting off at his exit, he gets off one exit early so he can walk the street into his local favorite diner and have supper that night. This night would be different. As Julio got off of this subway, he noticed the platform was unusually empty. As he went to go down the stairs, suddenly a teenager wielding a knife appeared from around a column, told Diaz to give him his money. So Diaz reached in his back pocket and took out his entire wallet and gave it to the youth. As the youth turned to scamper off, Diaz said, wait a minute, you're forgetting something. And he took off his coat. And he walked toward the teenager, who is now dumbfounded, and went to hand him his coat. What are you doing, said the teen. Well, said Diaz, if you're going to be up all night robbing people, then you're going to need to stay warm. So I thought you'd need a coat. <laughs> Why are you doing this? He said, well, he said, I was raised that you should treat people nicely, weren't you? Well, yeah, said the teen, but I didn't think anyone actually behaved that way. What do you want anyway? Diaz said, well, I'm just going to my local diner and I get supper every night. And if you'd like, you can go along. And he did. The two of them went to the diner, sat in the booth and talked for more than an hour. Diaz asked the teenager what he wanted to do with his life. And he said, that's when the conversation changed. The teenager got quiet and his face got rather sad looking. At the end of that conversation, they got ready to leave and Diaz said, well, ordinarily at this time I pay for my meal, but since you're the one now with all of the money, I guess you'll have to pay for it yourself. Or if you'd like, you could give me back my wallet and then I'll pay for your meal and mine. And the teenager gave him back his wallet. He then paid the tab and gave the teenager $20. But before leaving, he said, in exchange for the $20, would you give me your knife? <laughs> and he did. When he told his mother, his mother said, you know, you're the kind of guy that if somebody asked you for the time, you'd give them your watch. But Diaz said, I just think the world is so complicated if we would just treat each other kindly, it would make it much easier for other people to be just as kind. Samuel Sesse is the director of an organization called EduNations. They build schools for remote villages in Sierra Leone. In 2014, when the Ebola virus swept through Africa, killing thousands, they changed their strategy. EduNations would no longer build schools, at least not now. Now they would take their monies and start providing either shelter or food for families. If you were suspected of having the virus, then as today, you were forced into a three-week quarantine, African families being larger, it was simply not possible for many of them to survive. There were rumors in the villages that children were dying not of the virus, but of isolation 
and of starvation. So Edunations got involved in providing both housing and food. One of the employees of that organization was named John. There were accusations against him that he had taken monies not his and used them inappropriately. When those accusations proved out to be true, John was released from the organization and Samuel, the director, is the one who had to tell him. When he got the news, John was so angry that he contracted the services of a local witch doctor to pronounce a curse of death on Samuel and all of his family. Then, in almost a fluke turn of events, someone living in John's house, a woman, was found playing with one of the children in the village whose mother had died with the virus. Now suddenly John and his entire family of 23 people had to quarantine for three weeks. There was no way they would survive it. When Samuel learned of this, he moved John's name to the top of his list. He found the money, then found the food and brought the food to John's family, even though there was a rope around his house forbidding anyone entrance. On one day when John looked out and saw another shipment of food coming into his house, he was so overwhelmed that he broke free and ran towards the people to thank them, almost breaking the rope that was separating the house. Fortunately, by the end of their quarantine, no one in the house was found to have the disease and he could return to look for work. But John was so overwhelmed by this act of mercy and compassion, kindness toward him and his family that he came to the church and wept and asked for someone to forgive him. Samuel said, I learned from that that love has the power to do what nothing else can do. 1996, Kashia Thomas is an 18-year-old black high school senior living in Ann Arbor, Michigan. She is gathered with about 70 to 100 other people to oppose a rally of the KKK in downtown Ann Arbor. We simply wanted them to know, she said, that their beliefs are not welcome in our city. In the middle of their protesting, while the police had all their riot gear on, suddenly a man appears who is wearing a T-shirt with a Confederate flag. He has a Nazi tattoo on his arm. And when he is spotted, someone with a megaphone shouts out, there's a Klansman. Turns out he was not. When the man turned and saw it, he ran. The crowd followed. Mark Bruner, an amateur photographer, caught the series of events on his camera. In the midst of running, 
the man fell. And when he fell, the mob caught him and they began to kick him and hit him with their posts and their placards. And that was when Kashia Thomas, this 18-year-old who had come there to protest this kind of behavior, this attire, throws herself on top of the man and shields off his attackers. And she won't get off of him until he is released and set free. The photographer, Bruner, the young man himself said, he was overcome by that show of compassion. He said, I saw that that woman did for that man what in my opinion he would never have done for her. Then he said, who does that in the world today? Another way to ask that is what manner of love is this? People are fond of talking about convictions today. We say almost nothing about love. And when we do, I'm not sure we know what it is. And I don't think we know how to get it. Turns out when you get a bunch of Christians into a room, they talk about love in funny language. They use Greek terms, eros and philos and agape. And they sound sometimes as though agape was a word the Christians invented. It was not. The philosophers used the term years before Paul or even Jesus to speak of love. What the Christians did that had never been done before, and it was revolutionary, is they moved this virtue, love, to the center of all other virtues. It was unheard of. This is why you could hear Paul saying a moment ago, if I have languages, and if I have faith, and if I give my life as a martyr, but I do not have love, I'm nothing. No one would have talked like that, only the Christians. Until you have this virtue, all of the others are muted. Ambition, industriousness, cleverness intelligence, but without love. Think of it, says William Sullivan. Isn't that a perfect description of the devil? Only the Christians said something is missing if intelligence does not have love, if strength and power is not channeled by love. The other thing that the Christians did that was remarkable is they filled this word agape with another meaning that it didn't have before. The Christians said that agape was not simply the love humans have for one another, not even in a great relationship, they said agape was the love that God has for humans. And this was different in kind, not in degree. 
in kind. We haven't seen this kind of love before. Let me point out some of the differences. Humans believe that love is involuntary. It's something unforeseen. You just fall into it because you can't help it. You're moved by something in someone else and you are, how did Disney say, Twitter-pated and just taken over by this. So it's never a decision. But to the Christians, love was voluntary. It was a decision. The primary attribute was not fondness for another person. It was a decision to act in a certain way towards that other person. Feelings were completely aside. So however you feel about someone, said the Christians, when you're patient and kind and not easily angered and when you don't hold a grudge, that is a decision to act in love, however you feel. And that was different because most people felt they couldn't do that unless they felt like it, do we not? Well, if I did that and I didn't feel it, I'd be a hypocrite. <laughs> if you wait until you feel it, you might be worse. Second big change was that the, the public felt or feels as though love is responsible bonding to something that it values in another person, whether it's beauty or charm, intelligence, even potential. We look at another person and when we are sort of taken over by that person, it's because something we value is resident in that person and we want to go get it. But the Christians said, nah, nothing is further from the truth. In love, you don't respond to another person's value. You create that value. In fact, that value isn't there until you show up to love it out of them. <laughs> this is the difference, said Bonhoeffer. Our love is always holding some person in our sight with a vision of what we want that person to become. But if you think about it, it makes our relationships, well, manipulative at worst, or tenuous at best, short-lived. But the Christians were different. They said, there is nothing until love shows up. I have this discussion. I had it last year with uh, some collegians. I spoke at IWU Chapel and I spoke on um, salvation as marriage. And I made a comment in the, the um, message off to the side. I should just follow the notes. And the comment was about someone who was al alone and unattractive. And so when it was over, one person came forward and said, I got two, three friends, but they can't come right now. They're so mad. I've decided to come on their behalf. I said, what's the problem? They said, we're offended. Oh, I was shocked. I said, wow, I haven't heard anybody being offended in probably, well, it's been 10 minutes. 
They said, what seems to be the problem? They said, well, you spoke as if the person um, has no potential. I said, well, she doesn't. See, that's what ticks us off. I said, you speak of potential as if it were some self-evident static quality that lies buried in every individual covered under layers of low self-esteem until somebody finds it. This is not potential. Potential is nothing. There is no potential until there is somebody else to call it out. In other words, every person's potential lies in somebody else. It's not in them. It's in the person who loves them. They love it out of them. I'm not being critical of collegians when they say this. They are simply repeating the only lines we taught them. And they learned this, by the way, in church. The third major contrast when the Christians got hold of the word was this. People believed that love was exclusive. When you loved someone, you reached out and pulled another person into your world. It was then you and them, just the two of you, a separate entity unto yourself, kind of cut off and removed like an island from the rest of community. And uh, so you hear Christians today talk about my personal relationship with Jesus Christ as if they were dating. But in the Christian vision of love, it's multiplied. When the love of God comes into a person's heart, they don't pull God in after themselves and speak in terms of my God or my Jesus or what my Bible says. What God does is he sheds that love abroad in people's hearts. So it actually goes through the person into other people. In fact, John says in 1 John 4, 16, the love of God is not even complete in you. It isn't even finished in you until you love somebody else. So far from being exclusive and limiting and constraining and small and private, the love of God, said the Christians, is multiplied. It's centrifugal. It just throws itself out onto others. How you doing? Are you there? Well, this raises the question invariably, then how do we do this? Well, said Jesus in John 15, that is both simpler and harder. It's simpler because you don't have to manufacture it. You can't do this. This isn't hard. It's impossible for you. So you can't just generate this yourself. But it's harder because the kind of love we're talking about and just described is like stuff you've never seen. I mean, how many of you can honestly say that you've been in a love that unselfish, that life-giving. 
Here's what we learn from Jesus's language in John 15. One is we learn that fruitfulness is really important to God such that if somebody is not producing fruit, he cuts them off. And if they are producing fruit, he prunes them, disciplines them, hurts them, so they bear even more. Because the obsession of God is never that we should just feel loved, but that we should give it away. Always. In fact, you can't have it until you give it away. Just the way it works. Any love you're trying to get for yourself this morning is too small to make you happy. So the psalmist in the Old Testament said that God took a vine out of Egypt and planted it. It sent down its roots and then it spread its branches over the mountains and gave shade to all the people. Do you get the point again? God found Israel, planted them, and as their roots went down, Israel's reach around the world was to give shade to people. But then the psalmist said, you failed to do this. And so Yahweh said, I'm taking down the fences and I'm going to let the wild animals trample your vineyards and eat all your fruit. I'll abandon you. Isaiah said the same thing. And Jesus said the same thing. If it's not producing, then he cuts it off. But here's the difference, says Jesus. The love that comes from the Father is not something you manufacture because you heard a sermon on it and you went home and you said, nah, he's right about that. I really should be more loving. I've got to work on this. I've got to try harder. It does not come from failed attempts and feelings of guilt, says Jesus. The love of God comes from being attached to God. That's why he said, Abide in me as I abide in you. For the branches, that's you, cannot produce fruit, that's love, unless it is attached to the vine, that's me. Jesus said, this is how it works. The Father has given his love to me I am giving my love to you so that you have something to give to other people. But you are not to produce this. You are simply to channel it. You can't make this happen. So the way to become more loving is to worry less about being more loving. trying too hard. It's to worry more about abiding. The goal 
is for you to learn how to love. But your focus is for you to learn how to abide. Because if you walk out of here today and say, I have got to get better at loving, you will neither love nor abide. But if you walk out of here today and say, let love take care of itself, I have got to learn how to abide in God. If you do that, then it starts to happen more naturally. It is uncontrived. It is not artificial. Does that make sense? So, says Jesus, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you then abide in my love. And you have something for others. I struggle with this in a couple of ways. One is that I can be too hard on myself, too demanding, too exact, standards too high, failure is not an option. And if it is, if you do, well, then you live with it a long time. Dan Marino said, you get over your wins immediately, you'll live with your losses till Wednesday. What he meant was next Wednesday. I mean, it's like 10 days of just, what? I can't believe I did that. Is that just me? I'm not doing my therapy, I'm doing our therapy. Aren't I? So I can be very critical and condescending on myself. And what this proves really is that I do not understand the love that the Father has for the Son. For clearly there is no way the son feels that he must perform. No. The son does what he wants and it is consistent with the father's heart. That's different. So his actions proceed from a relationship that is aware of the father's love. He starts there and goes forward. The second way I know that this is hard for me is when I get in situations where someone else is not acting in a loving way, that's a long way to say, it's a religious way to say they're jerks. Then I find it easy to be a jerk. I find it easy to fight injustice with injustice. It is easy to overpower incendiary rhetoric with more incendiary rhetoric. We shout them down. And it just proves that I'm trying to manufacture what seems impossible for me. So here's what I'm learning. If we live in God, we are always in between him and somebody else. Our job is never to manufacture something that doesn't exist into that person. It is simply to channel the love that the father already has for them 
through us. That's it. So now when we go into meetings or we go into conflicts or into heated arguments or into debates where the emotions are escalating, I'm trying to learn how to stay in two places. Instead of leaving my time alone with God and getting out to the real world, I remember that my time in the real world proceeds from my time with God. It's nothing more than an extension of it. In fact, if God is spirit, he has no way to get into this world except through a human being. It's not like he can just barge in and do anything he wants. Human beings are portals for the presence of God. What do you think the incarnation was? Well, all this to say that when we do this with any kind of regularity in a time like this, when people's language and their emotions are so fragile and high and tense and the sides have already been chosen and the nation is becoming more polarized and people are jumping to conclusions. If we were to live like this in a society like that, it would be compelling. But we must not wait for the environment to get easier. Patty Shafsky wrote a play called Gideon. It's about a man that, well, he's lying awake one night in his tent and he's having a conversation with God who he hopes is there. The conversation goes like this. God, it's Gideon. Are you there or not? He hears a voice. The voice says, Yes, Gideon, I'm here. Oh, good. Says the young man, uh, God, do you love me? Do you love me, God? Tell me. And he hears a voice say, yes, Gideon, of course I love you. Why do you love me, God? Tell me why you love me. And he hears a voice say, well, quite frankly, Gideon, I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes love is unreasonable. Love is never more powerful than when it's unreasonable. It's never stronger then you see it where it doesn't belong, like a subway in New York, like a riot in Ann Arbor, or a village in Sierra Leone. Where is the place where it's hardest for you to love? And who are the people? And what are they doing? When they do it, you think, mm. What if you could just get out of your own way and channel the love of God there? I've given you questions that I hope will 
guide you in this discussion. They're on the screen in front of you. The first, I hope we've helped answer, what are common misconceptions that maybe you grew up with about love? It was earned, it was artificial, it was maybe too demanding. And how is the love of God different from the love that you grew up believing in? As you've gotten older and matured, what's the most important thing you've learned about love? And how do you learn that? Was there a moment or was there a teacher? Was there some time in your life where that difference became clear? And how do you practice that today? How did it change you? And finally, I asked a moment ago, what person or what kind of person is the hardest for you to love? Bet you could name them. And if you were to love them anyway, what would you need to do? <laughs> love is patient. Love does kindness. It's not rude, not envious, not self-seeking, puffed up, not easily angered, doesn't keep a long list of faults. Love trusts, hopes, perseveres, never fails. If you ever wanted something more or other, you were wide of the mark. If you have this, you have it all. Father, into your hands I commit this body, these people, whatever else you do for us and whatever else we ask for this week, give us this. <laughs>